John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that what she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Lord, we do ask, just as Doug prayed earlier, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey the word in which you speak to us this time, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, as Doug said, this is a turning point in the storyline up until this point. John has been speaking about Jesus and his ministry upon this earth, and now he turns to the very last week of Jesus' life. I uh, very much so like resolutions. Uh, I don't like uh, New Year's resolutions. That's not what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, I have zero luck uh, uh, of fulfilling any New Year's resolutions. I don't even try anymore because I know I won't be able to fulfill them. That's not the resolution. I'm talking about res- when, when things resolve, when, you, when things come to a completion or to a conclusion, I like those kind of things. I like the epilogue to a story or the last few minutes of any movie where you get everything wrapped up and you get to see the nice things at the end. I'm a huge fan of Disney. And because at the end of every movie, they live happily ever after. I love that. That's, I like that kind of wrap everything up to the point, because what happens is that so much of our lives, uh, the stories in which we hear, the events in which we know of, that you've got a, a build-up to the climax, and the climax is the point. The climax is the main thrust of everything, and hey, here we go, and that's great. Once you get there, you've kind of learned the point of everything, but I'm just kind of one of those guys that I kind of, I like everything kind of tied up a little bit. I want that epilogue. What did Lazarus do? after Jesus raised him from the dead. This guy was dead for four days. He gets raised from the dead. What do you think he did? What, what, what would you... I want the rest of the story. I want the epilogue here. Uh, okay, the climax obviously is Jesus raising him from the dead. Now, if you uh, aren't familiar with chapter 11... Of John. In chapter 11 of John, Jesus goes to his best friend, a good friend, who has died four days earlier after an illness of some sort, and he's in a cave in darkness, in, the, in death, uh, where everything has a hold on him. He's died. 
And then Jesus, with the power of the resurrection, raises him up from the grave. And Lazarus is alive again. And cut! Scene ends. And that's okay, because the point of the scene is not what Lazarus does, but the power of Jesus Christ. But I want to know what happens after that. I'd love to know how Lazarus actually responds. You know, what do you think he did? Fall at Jesus' feet? Go dancing around? Starting a teaching tour or something? You know, I was dead, now I'm alive again. I, I don't know what he... Now, this is not just an academic question. If you were here last week, or if you spent time reading John chapter 11, you will know that what Jesus does for Lazarus is exactly what He has done for every Christian in this room. Now, it is certainly true that there will come a time at the second coming of Jesus Christ when every believer will be raised, transformed. We will have that new resurrection body that He intends to give for us and we will stand fully, body and spirit, reunited before our Lord in praise and glory. That is coming for every Christian that is present here in this room. But... It's also true that that resurrection power that the Lord demonstrated at bringing Lazarus out of the tomb is exactly what He has done for every Christian in this room. He has brought you out of death. He has brought you out of a land of decay, out of a land filled with deep darkness, and He has right now given you the light of life. When we read in chapter 11 about Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, we're not reading something that just happened 2,000 years ago. We're reading something that happened 2,000 years ago and happens every day as people come to place their trust in Jesus Christ and He does that exact same powerful work that He has done with every Christian in this room. Now, if you were raised in the church and you don't remember, or if you had some powerful dramatic experience, Nevertheless, for every one of us, we, like Lazarus, have been raised from the dead. So when I ask the question, what did Lazarus then do? It's not just an academic question. It's not because I want to know what Lazarus did. I want to know what I'm to do. How do you respond to the Lord of life when you really realize what the cave was like where you were dwelling? When you really realize what it was like to live amidst the people who are dead and decaying and through the power of God's Word, He has called you right now out of darkness and into His life. How do we live? How do we respond? Well, how did Lazarus respond? How did he live? Chapter 12, interestingly enough, comes right after chapter 11. Chapter 11, you've got that high point. You've got that that climax of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then you get a couple verses that talk about the Pharisees' opposition. And then the very next thing we see here in chapter 12 is the response of the people who have been raised from the dead. Verse 1 begins in chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Now, one of the things, if you read the text slowly, you have to ask yourself, why is it that the author identifies the fact that this takes place six days before Passover? What is it that's important about this that triggers the author to say, hey, it's six days before Passover? Is he simply giving a chronological marker? Does he just want to say, hey, this is the day of the week that it took place or something? I don't think so at all, especially for those who know the storyline of Jesus who know the end result, we know that Passover marks that period that is His death and resurrection. 
That's that what Passover. Passover comes to take on that flavor for every Christian. If you know the story, you know that it's around Passover that Christ died and raised again. And so when the author here says oh, it's around Passover that this took place, everybody with ears that have heard the story, that knows the story, realize that overshadowing this entire story, what we're about to work through, what I read earlier, overshadowing this whole thing is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What takes place here where Mary pours out ointment upon Jesus' feet, where Lazarus is present there, where the crowd gathers, where Judas makes his comments, all of that takes place within the context for the Christian where we're all geared up to think, hey, this is about, or this centers on, or in the background is the overarching emphasis upon Christ's death and His resurrection. The text says that on the sixth day, six, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And again, if you're reading slowly, you get to that last phrase, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And you sit there and say, I know who Lazarus is. He just was talking about Lazarus. He just talked about Lazarus. He had a whole chapter on Lazarus being raised from the dead. Why does the author take time to mark out Lazarus here as the one whom Jesus raised from the dead? Because it's impossible to talk about Lazarus. It's impossible to think about him. Can you imagine the guy was raised from the dead? He will never go anywhere in his life. He will never do a single thing in his life. He will never meet a single person who doesn't immediately associate him. Oh my gosh, Lazarus, you're the guy that was for four days dead. And now you've been raised again. He is always marked by that exact... You are always marked by the fact that Christ has raised you from the dead. I... People meet me and they know, oh, you're Henry, you're the pastor. I love being a pastor. I'm glad that they know me by that. Or they say, oh, you're Sabrina and Jason's father. But usually what they say is, oh, you're Kelly's husband. Uh, you know, so they, they, they know me by her. Okay, that's great. And I, I'm proud to be known by all of those things. Oh, Lord, that you would first and foremost think of me. Oh, there's Henry, the guy who's been redeemed by the Lord. Oh, there's Henry, the Christian. Oh, there's Henry, the guy who's following after Jesus. That's the way you should be known. People should look at you and not identify you by your job or by your relationships or your family. All those things are great. But what if you were living a life so overcome by the fact that our Lord raised you out of the dead? that everybody who sees you, everybody who identifies you, can only see you as, oh, there's this person who's been raised from the grave by Jesus Christ. Because that's what's happened to every believer in this room. Lazarus is never mentioned after this point without that caveat, the guy who was raised from the dead. When he shows up in the Bible, he's always marked as a guy who was raised from the dead because you can't get away from that identification. We should not ever be able to get away from the identification. That should be the first thing that is marked by every person in this room. Hey, you first and foremost are a follower of Jesus Christ. You first and foremost have been raised from the grave. Verse 2 
then we get the story about what Lazarus is doing. So they came, they gave a dinner for him there. If you're reading slowly, you say, okay, who's the him there? That could either be Lazarus or it could be Jesus. Given the rest of the verse here, I think it's pretty clear that it's Jesus that they're giving the dinner for. So they give a dinner, they host Jesus. Uh, Mary, uh, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So Lazarus is there at the table. Now, many of you know that uh, the ancient Near Eastern practice of eating dinner, you would lay down. Uh, you would actually you'd prop yourself up on an elbow. There would be a really low table that would have the food. And propped up on a table with your feet sticking away from the table, then you would go ahead and eat. And that was the way in which you ate dinner at a formal or a celebratory event. Not normally. The normal way of eating was the way that you and I would eat, either sitting up around a table or sitting in a circle passing food, something like that. But because they identify here Lazarus laying down, you know that here, the first experience that Jesus has, the first evidence that we have of Lazarus responding to Jesus, who has raised him from the dead, how does, how does Lazarus respond? He responds by eating dinner with Jesus. Just not any dinner. They don't go to Arby's or something. This is a celebration. Arby's? This, uh, whatever. Uh, th- this is a celebration. They have a massive party that's going on here. That's what this is, cel- this, that's what this is marking. Not that Jesus gathers with Lazarus and, okay, what does Lazarus do? Being raised from the dead. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Lazarus says, man, I want to know everything I possibly can about this God who has raised me from the dead. And so he studies theology, he studies his scriptures, well, or he might sit there and say, hey, I've just been given a new lease on life, I want to serve people in Jesus' name. I want to give myself fully and totally into serving other people and pouring myself out upon them. Or maybe he goes on a speaking tour. You know, hey, I was dead for four days and guess what Jesus did for me? He becomes this massive evangelist. I hope that's what Lazarus did. I hope that's what you are doing. All of us, Lazaruses, who have been raised from the dead, I hope every person here is overcome with the interest of telling people what it means that we are no longer trapped in the grave, that you want desperately to understand and to know this Lord more and more deeply so you study theology, so that your compassion raises through the roof for other people and you give yourself in service to our Lord in ministering to other people. I hope all that happens But that's not what the text shows us. The text shows us Lazarus doing one thing, celebrating. Because that's what we should be about. Every waking minute of the Christian should be as one who has been brought up from the grave and we should be overcome with the passion and the desire to celebrate, to party with Jesus. Because that's what the Bible describes. When the Israelites are led out through the Red Sea into Mount Sinai, the first thing they do is have a massive party. When every Christian becomes a believer, when every person, every person who becomes a believer, uh, the angels in heaven celebrate. The end result of our time in Resol- Re- Revelation is pictured as a massive feast. There should be a time of great celebration. It, last week at this service, it was announced that some of the students that went to Passion came back, and one or two of them, a number of them, gave their life to the Lord, and this congregation spontaneously applauded. It was kind of awkward because we're Presbyterians. But nevertheless, it Spontaneous applause, and that's exactly what it should be like. 
We should be celebrating every minute of our existence because our Lord has brought us out of death into life. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to be... Everybody knows Bouncing Betty, you know? Everything's joyous and everything's excited. Whatever your personality, however you celebrate the people who know you best, you need to go to them and you need to say, listen, you know that my Lord Jesus has brought me from death into life. Please tell me that you can see that I am celebrating every second of my life. However that fits for me. I'm kind of closed in emotionally. I know I am. I'm not going to be that kind of a person. But I want people around me nevertheless to say, given your personality type, Henry, I see you celebrating every second of your life. Because that's how Lazarus responds to the Lord of life. And the Lord of life has spoken to me. The Lord has spoken to you. And your response is to be the exact same thing. Go on a speaking tour. Be an evangelist. Be a theologian. Be a servant for our Lord. Yes, absolutely all of those things. But be a man or a woman who is overcome with celebration, however that shows itself in your life. Overcome by celebration in the Lord. I think the same experience fits Mary just perfectly. Mary, the beloved sister of Lazarus. Mary, the one who threw herself at Jesus' feet. The one who identifies so immensely. I think when Mary sees Lazarus raised from the dead, she sees Jesus call him out of the grave, I think Mary makes the exact connection. If God can raise him from the dead, He can raise me from my dead heart as well and make me alive. And so we see not just Lazarus' response here, but we also see Mary's response. Look in verse 3. Verse 3, we see what Mary does. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, all of us kind of know what anointing looks like. I mean, it's not a very popular tradition around today, but we kind of get the idea. You're pouring ointment or something. You're pouring oil upon somebody's face. It was not a... It wasn't an uncommon thing. If a visitor came to your house, you would kind of rub some oil, which would be refreshing in that time period, upon their skin and stuff like that. So there was, not an everyday, but a rather common experience of anointing, but not what Mary does here. The uh, uh, anointing that Mary does here is one that sets Jesus apart as something special. Not special like as one of many. You know, oh, this person is special among all the other people that are out there. No, this is a setting apart that sets somebody overarching all things that else could be experienced. When Mary here anoints Jesus, she's identifying Him not as somebody that's important in her life, but somebody who will dominate and rule over every aspect of your life. It is so easy for Christians to be engaged with Jesus on a certain level. It's okay, it's it's satisfactory in some people's minds just to let Jesus have a part of your life. Or even to have the most important part of your life. But that's not what our Lord claims. Our Lord acclaims a complete, to be totally above and beyond all things. He is to be Lord of every aspect of your life. And the only way to do that is through the practice of anointing. That is, that you set Him apart to be Lord over every aspect of your life. 
once again, somebody who knows you well, who walks with you well, can they say to you, yes, I have seen you make the Lord Jesus Lord of every aspect of your life. You have anointed Him. You have set Him apart to be your Lord and your Savior in every way. It's not just that she anoints Jesus, but she anoints Him extravagantly. This is the, the, this imagery here of having a pound of pure nard. Now a pound is, a, this is a Roman pound, our pound 16 ounces. Their uh, Roman pound would be about 12 ounces or 11 or 12 ounces. So think about a Coke can or so. So a Coke can filled with perfume. And this is that kind of perfume that just a little dabble do you kind of a thing, uh, you know, and then you smell at the house. And yet she takes this Coke can full of perfume and she dumps it all over Jesus. Uh, Matthew and Mark also tell this story and they indicate that, the, uh, that what Mary does is not just anoint the feet, but that she pours it all over him. So it's soaking his, his head, it's soaking his clothing, it's soaking his feet, it soaks the totality, every part of him. And the end of our verse, verse 3 says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Everything, every aspect of this. Now this is not perfume that easily goes away. A little bit later in the text, Jesus says, Mary did this in anticipation of my death. Six days away, we're told at the beginning, that shadow of the Passover that overflows this thing. Jesus would have smelled of this perfume overwhelmingly for the following week. This smell would have hung to him, never getting away from him. And it covered every aspect of his body, just like Mary in her devotion is seeking to demonstrate the totality of what she gives to him, the overwhelming devotion to our Lord. It's comprehensive. It covers every part of who Mary is because it covers every part of who Jesus is. In your response to the Lord of life who has called you out of death, can the people around you say that you have extravagantly given to our Lord where every part of who you are is connected to every part of who He is? It's not just an extravagant gift, but it's an incredibly sacrificial gift. This is Mary, we're told in the other versions, that the glass, the jar that has it, breaks in half. Uh, and so the jar is useless as the ointment pours all over Jesus, spills all over him. We're told that it's an expensive ointment of pure nard. Now, nard is a, a, a plant substance that comes from India. And if you're familiar with your geography, you know that India is a long, long way away from Bethany, from Palestine, where where Mary is. So it takes all that time to get over there. This is, was something that probably was the most wealthy, the most cherished thing that Mary held, uh, that Mary had. We don't know if Mary and Lazarus were wealthy. Perhaps they were. Uh, I don't know about that. But later, Judas says that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's worth of work. So this is 300 days of work. So given Sabbaths and festivals, etc., etc., this is a year's salary. Mary takes a year's salary worth of perfume and dumps it all on Jesus. I don't know how wealthy she might have been, but that's a sacrifice. Not just financially, but it's a sacrifice of herself as she gives completely of what she has 
for her Lord and her Savior. Are you responding to the Lord of life sacrificially? It's one thing to give when we can, when it's easy. And that's fine. But the Scriptures call us to a... And I'm not talking here just financially. I'm not talking financially at all. I'm talking about you as a disciple. You as, as one who is responding to the Lord of life who calls forth from you. Are you sacrificing? Is it costly for you to extravagantly pour your love out upon your Savior? She takes and wipes his feet with her hair. It wouldn't have been racy for a woman at that time period to be seen with her hair down at a formal gathering like this. But close. It would have been wildly inappropriate. Wearing a bathing suit to a formal dinner or something like that. It it would have been wildly inappropriate for her to take her hair down and to dry off his feet. But that's the the sacrificial aspect of her action, not to to put aside her own dignity, to to put aside anything about her and just give herself completely over to her Lord. I am so guilty of not being able to do that in my devotion to Jesus. I, I want to respond to Him in that way. I want you desperately to respond to Him extravagantly sacrificially, and finally, humbly. Do you see where she is? Mary is at Jesus' feet. Just like Lazarus, whenever we meet him, he's always the guy that Jesus has raised from the dead. Mary, whenever we meet her, most of the times we meet her, she is at Jesus' feet. When Jesus is teaching in the room, there is Jesus at Mary's feet. When Mary meets Jesus on the road, she throws herself at Jesus' feet. Here, John makes the point, even though I believe the ointment went all over John, she makes the point that the ointment is at Jesus' feet because that's where Mary is. Not because she doesn't want this anointing to be seen as something she's doing. She wants the anointing to be something that lifts Jesus up to the world. Don't you want that desperately to be your response to God? The Lord who has saved you from death, Don't you want to set Him apart as Lord over everything to sacrificially and extravagantly and humbly lift Him so the whole world sees? John points out two other people that will give a counter to Mary's devotion in the way Mary responds and the way Lazarus responds to the Lord of life. Take a look at Judas for a second. Now, Judas is in verse 4 and following. Uh, we know that Judas is the bad guy of the story. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus as a whole, you know that he's a bad guy. So when I tell you don't be like Judas, that should come as no great surprise to you. But don't be like Judas. Okay? So Judas is set up here as a counter position. But I want you to be careful about why you're not supposed to be like Judas. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was to betray him, this is just like Mary, You can't talk about Mary without talking about Jesus' feet. You can't talk about Lazarus without talking about him being raised to death, uh, raised from the dead. The the author here, years later, when he's writing down his account, still can't get over the fact that Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. So every time he mentions Judas, he reminds us. He doesn't remind us because he's afraid we're going to forget. 
he reminds us because he can't imagine. He, he, he's still stunned by it. And says, Judas, the guy that was going to betray Jesus. What does Judas say? Why couldn't this money have been sold? So the money given to the poor. But he didn't really care about the poor. He only wanted the money because he was kind of a thief. And so part of the easy point of the story is don't be a thief. Don't betray Jesus. Don't be a thief. But the part that stands out to me is Jesus's response, or Judas's response. He was there too. Judas was there with the rest of the disciples when he saw Jesus raise Lazarus out of the grave. And he sees the power of, of Jesus raising Lazarus out of the grave just like he does with each one of us. And what's, Judas, what's Judas's response? How can I benefit from this power? How can I benefit from this guy? It is innate inside each one of us to be self-centered, to be self-focused, to think of ourselves just like that. I don't want you to be like Judas and betray Jesus. Okay, easy. I don't want you to be like Judas and don't be a thief. Okay, that's easy. I don't want you to be like Judas. Did I say Judas? Jesus, whatever. I don't want you to be like Judas and be somebody who looks at Jesus only for what you can get from Him. That's what Judas did. And it's so tempting to think of everything about how it affects me. It's so tempting to think of Jesus about how he affects me. I don't want you to be like Judas, nor do I want you to be like the crowd. Look at verse 9 for a second. The very end of this, the crowd then says, there's a large crowd of Jews that come to, when they hear that Jesus is there, they come not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Here's where way too many of our Christian brother and sister are. They see Jesus, they're intrigued by him. He's a spectacle. He's interesting. He's helpful. He's amazing. He's worth coming and standing from afar and kind of watching Him. And you do that by coming to church once in a while. You, come, you do that by every once in a while reading the Bible. You do that by... You stand off and you say, yes, that Jesus is kind of cool and I like Him. But you don't do what every disciple of the Lord does which is give yourself totally and completely over to Jesus. Where I don't want you to look at Jesus like Judas does and say, what can I get from Jesus? I don't want you to look at Jesus like the crowds do and say, wow, that's really interesting. I appreciate that. I believe in Jesus. End of story. You need to be like Lazarus. You need to be like Mary, I need to be giving of myself so completely and so totally, so sacrificially and extravagantly because the Lord of life has called me out of the darkness. The Lord of life has called you out of the grave. And you right now are living a life where you get to respond every day to the Lord of life. You need to ask yourself, you need to ask a good friend. You need to say to your spouse, you need to say to your kids, do you see me responding to the Lord of life like Mary? 
Do you see that extra? Do you see me partying every day because I'm a believer? Do you see me giving myself totally and completely because I am a believer? Because that's what the Lord has done for you. And you either give of yourself that way or you don't. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us in the grave, but like Lazarus, we have been raised in anticipation of that great resurrection that is yet to come at the end of time. Nevertheless, Lord, we now know that we are led by the Lord of life. Father, it is so tempting for every one of us in this room to think only in terms of ourselves and to compartmentalize you to an important part of our life, but not the totality of our lives. To think only of you in terms of what we can get from you. To give only what we can easily do so. And to give without necessarily lifting you before the world. Lord, in every step along those ways, we confess to you and we pray for that greater picture, that greater opportunity to respond to you the way Mary has, the way Lazarus has, to celebrate and to give all that we have for your glory and your praise, in whose name we pray. Amen.